1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Hey, Shiloh, good to be back with you here. We are doing sections 71 through 75, the Doctrine and Covenants, this week. So these sections... As we move in or towards section 76, this is all kind of a a precursor, kind of lays a little bit of groundwork for how section 76 came about. Um, Sidney Rigdon has entered the scene full fledged here, right? He's helping Joseph Smith do what they call translation of the Bible. Now, that's a, that's a whole discussion. Entire volumes and papers have been written on, on what in the Joseph Smith Restored context. This word translation means. So we'll have a little bit of a discussion about that. But you know, starting off in section seventy-one, uh, the Lord tells them to to stop that for a time and to go preach the gospel. Basically, you know, Ezra Booth has has left the church previously. He's been uh, writing a lot of stuff and publishing it um, against the church. And so Joseph and Sydney are supposed to go out and, and preach and try to dispel some of the rumors and, and stuff that, that Ezra Booth has been uh, spreading. In section 72, this is uh, an interesting section because it's it's like almost all administrative type of things. This is how this is going to work and what bishops are going to do. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that even though you can kind of see... Uh, shining through a little bit here, how this influences our view of the bishop today, it, it actually is uh, pretty different from how the bishop, how bishops or the bishop in terms of presiding bishop actually operates in the church today. So you can see this is kind of an early conception of the office of a bishop and what they're supposed to do. And like I said, that's that's evolved quite a bit to to where we are today with With what we call a bishop and and their responsibility, even though there are some some fundamentals there that we might still attribute to uh, that responsibility of a bishop. 73, they're supposed to recommence the the work of translation. Again, we'll have a discussion about what we kind of mean by that. And what's great about this is then we jump into section 74, which is like a really good example of what we mean by translation. It's called a revelation here, but, but what's interesting is the wording of section 74, it doesn't start off with, you know, thus saith the Lord, or hear the words of your Redeemer, or I'm Alpha and Omega, you know, all those sort of things that this, this starts off with. 74 doesn't do that. It just kind of like jumps right into this commentary. It's called a revelation here, but basically it really meshes with this concept of translation. It's like an inspired commentary on this verse in 1 Corinthians 7.14. And it brings up all kinds of fascinating concepts tangential to religion and what we mean by revelation and what we mean by ordinances and and what we mean by tradition and and what we mean by modes of worship and and things like that. I think there's quite a a big discussion to be had around section 74 and all the implications of it. Then we get to uh, section 75 here, part of a conference that's being had and some instruction given to missionaries to go preach. So there's a lot of a uh, lot of name dropping, so to speak, right? There's a lot of people named here and what they're supposed to do and can give us a little bit of insight into the early saint conception of what we might call today missionary work, um, going out and, and preaching the gospel. And so <clears throat> here we're just, we're seeing more about this culture that's arising in the church and how the dynamic is working with all of these early elders of the church and, and how they interact with Joseph Smith and this evolving and expanding idea of revelation and translation and and all this that, that Joseph Smith is sort of pioneering here at, at, that gets called revelation, you know, by the church. So, you know, in section 71, we have this imperative from the Lord, hey, stop Doing the translation and uh, set it aside. He says, Go out and preach the gospel. I like uh, here in verses uh, five and six, I've talked about this several times. I just, I really like the concept that is brought up with this word receive. Let him understand and receive also, for unto him that receiveth it shall be given more abundantly, even power. I like the idea that receive is this active thing that we choose to do, that it's always there for us, and that when we choose to receive something, there's always more to be given. The Lord's not holding anything back. It's simply our willingness to accept it that is, is really the regulation of, of how much we can be given. Verse 7, I kind of sat with this for quite a while, and then I looked up the definition of confounded, which I read through all the stuff in the, the 1828 dictionary and none of it wasn't, it was stuff that I didn't know, but it, it really, it really kind of reiterated that confounded has to do with mixing things and making the distinction unapparent, confusing things. So whereas once things were two separate concepts, you bring them and you mix them up and it's not clear anymore. And so, this was really interesting to consider in the context of them going out and preaching the gospel. Why would it be that that would create confusion? So, verse 7, Wherefore, confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you, both in public and in private, and inasmuch as you are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. I was thinking about what it is, what, it, what does it mean to love your enemies, and what would it mean if you actually go out to meet them, right? It says here, meet them, public and private. Go out and actually meet up with them, sit down with them, have a conversation with them. Show them that you're not really their enemy. Show them by your love that they aren't. you aren't really guilty of the things they accuse you of. What this is going to do is confuse them at first, right? and 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 we see this sort of as a pattern throughout those who who practice this sort of proactive hyperactive love that when they when they go out to meet their enemies that there is this moment of confusion what's what's going on this isn't the way you're supposed to react you know you're supposed to fight me you're supposed to argue with me and instead there's sort of that moment of confusion confounding right you've before, I thought you were my enemy and I knew who my friends were. And now all of a sudden, this is confused. You're not my enemy? I thought you were my enemy, you know? And so I kind of see the the shame being manifest there because basically, they accuse you of being malicious when you're not. And there's at least a moment of shame that they're going to feel because they wrongfully accused. I kind of see this verse in, in a different way rather than like them going out to like Bible bash everybody. This is a way of them going out and there is going to be confusion, um, confounding, some shame involved in the fact that if they go out and they truly do preach with love and true authority that uh, we we read about in section 121, then you know you're going to have these moments where Their so-called enemies don't know who they are anymore. Wait, you're not my enemy anymore, right? So there's some confusion.
1: Yeah, I love everything that you just said there because that is so consistent with everything that we've talked about with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, another thing that I had thought about concerning verse 7 when it's talking about, you know, that whole confounding our enemies and calling them to meet us in public and private to talk about these things and that the shame is made manifest you know we've talked about it before, but it, for me, I thought about Luke chapter twelve when it talks about that whole the sins will be shouted from the rooftops, hmm. and, it, and it says, "For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops." Right. And a lot of the time, the interpretation we have of this scripture in Luke twelve two and three is a type of the wicked finally getting theirs. Yeah, it's it's like the guilt, the shame. They're gonna they're gonna finally get what's coming to them, man. They're gonna get everything that they have built up that they've done in the secret darkness. They're gonna finally feel ashamed. They're gonna feel humiliated. They're gonna feel the fear, and they're gonna finally get what's what they've been trying to make other people feel because
0: yeah,
1: yeah, that'll shut them up, right? And that's just not the way it's going because the, we've talked about this so many times before, but to speak our trauma is to heal from it. And we we can bring in the conversation of Cain again, but (laughs) suffice it, we're not going to do that. But to speak our trauma is to heal from it. And to keep that trauma within us and to not speak it out is to bury that curse within us and to, and to never actually deal with it. It's to feel the trauma over and over and over again. And we are a church that we believe in the doctrine of proxy, and how beautiful is it that God will even help us speak our trauma by proxy. That if we're not going to speak it, Others will speak it for us on the rooftop because once it's spoken, once it's out in the open, once it is no longer hidden, there's nothing to hide from anymore. There's no more shame to hide from. It's revealed everything that created that the shame narrative had forced back down into the ground. See, it's not the shame of what's happened once it's revealed and out into the open. It's the shame that buried it to begin with. Right. And once it's out in the open, then at that point, now there's healing. You now, I think of a time in uh, South Africa, and once all of the, the apartheid had happened, and, and that, that whole genocide that was going on between the white South Africans and the black South Africans, and about when they finally started to try to have healing and reconciliation between the two there, after the apartheid, they had this brilliant plan that was completely crazy where they said that what they wanted is they wanted everyone who had been a victim of violence to come forward and to give their story because they needed to heal from it. It needed to be recorded. It needed to be put down. They needed everyone's story because it needed to be documented so that they don't have to keep on relieving this thing over and over and over again. But they knew they couldn't stop there. So what they did is they went out and they said, if you have been a perpetrator of violence, we need your story too. Come and please give us your story so that we don't have to ever have to relive this ever again. Let's get every story out into the open. And so they had people who had committed violence to come in just to give their story without fear of reprisal or of punishment. Now, I mean, this is very, this is very Cain and Abel to me because it's, The purpose here was not for punishment. The purpose here was for reconciliation, for healing. right? And to speak that and to let that come into the open, now it's in the open. See, what happens is if you let this kind of trauma go unaddressed and unspoken, then what happens over years and years and years as new stories come out and new stories, it just keeps on ripping the scab off. And it never lets it heal. It just begins to scar over and over and over again. And you never truly heal from it.
0: Well, both victims and perpetrators start telling them, you know, if they don't speak it out loud, they're going to tell themselves that story over and over and over again, whether you're a victim or a perpetrator. And that story about their trauma is going to start informing their identity. And over time, that's going to actually, you know, manifest itself in society, in harmful ways.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why I love what you were saying so much with this, is because it really does show that, that call, that Sermon on the Mount, call to love our enemies. You know, here it's like, how can we possibly say to confound our enemies so they will be shamed in the end, right? Because that's kind of how the flavor of how like an sure. initial cursory reading of this. Sure. But once you, once you bring out that confound there means it's just, it's not clear, and 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 so our enemies are not clear because they're still dealing in their trauma, they're still dealing in the shame. And what happens is as we get them to speak to them and we bring that into the open and we reason, come reason with me, and we bring that into the open, then there can be healing. And that's when... There's no weapon that can ever be formed against us that can ever prosper because we never let our enemy stay in the story of anger against us because we are always inviting them out to speak their trauma against us. Because we realize that if you have hatred against me, if you have hatred here against me, come speak it openly to me so that we can both be reconciled. You know, I have a, I have a a recent example of this even. You know, there's a, there's a man in a, in a face a couple of facebook groups that i'm in who unbeknownst to myself i had i had very much offended him several, several months ago even last year in, in a conversation and he dealt with it and, and over several months he had dealt with it and had questioned himself he's a very intentional very brilliant person And he was very intentional with the Lord, and and he's like, you know, why am I feeling this way, and why am I allowing someone on on social media to affect me this way? And I had no idea what I—I couldn't even remember what I had said, and he, he largely couldn't remember what it was said. But then he had the ability of coming to me and saying, I'd like to open up a discourse here to talk with you and to see your perspective on things. And I I love those opportunities because I I myself have reached out to many people on social media because social media let's face it social media is a cesspool <laughs> it's not it's not a very good place to be able to have friendly correspondence and good feelings and is very unique if ever you can create that kind of space especially in perpetuity but over time in the last few days I've been able to to speak with this gentleman. And a love and a reconciliation and of, of forgiveness and of understanding of, of him understanding me and me understanding him and me telling him, I am so sorry. I had no intentionality of, of causing this kind of pain or to cause this kind of offense. But yet still, we have to recognize that even if we have no intentionality, of causing trauma, of causing pain in another. And yes, we all have to be responsible for our own offenses and for, the, and for our own things. But that doesn't justify going out and giving license to, to just willy nilly. Nor does it give us license that when we find out that our actions inadvertently have harmed another person, even if they've dealt with it and have been accountable to it, that we, we don't apologize, that we don't find reconciliation, we don't find love between each other. And so it was a beautiful moment for me to apologize and to say, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for this and what this has happened. And for him to be able to tell me about himself and him to, for him to invite me to tell me about myself and to clarify it. And and, and it's not to say that we agree on it. It's not like we're like, oh, yeah, we agree on everything. We have some very fundamental differences of opinion. But the brotherhood and the, and, and, and the brotherly kindness, though, that has been fostered has revolutionized that moment. And I, th- and I see this in this scripture, this is very much in the scripture about how this is how we reason with our enemies that we don't have to agree on the end. But then once we get into doing it, we realize we were never enemies to- at the beginning. Right. Right. And in that point, as I said, I've said a few times now, there's reconciliation and there's peace. And that's how I, r- I truly believe that we begin to find unity.
0: You know, going into verse 10 on that, you know, a lot of times we we may try to do that. We may make that effort towards our so-called enemies, right? And it's not accepted or we're not able to articulate in such a way that, that really does bring about that. You know, maybe... Maybe our language is insufficient, or maybe we really aren't uh, we really aren't emptied enough of our pride that that we can approach the thing with humility. And so then we have in verse 10 here, if any man lift his voice against you, he shall be confounded in mine own due time. you know that that these things can take time sometimes <laughs> um not not just for others, but for ourselves, you know, sorting that out and and realizing that that we, you know, can, Can approach that with more humility. Uh, One of the things you know you were talking about, like coming to someone and apologizing because you know inadvertently you done something, and and that does happen a whole lot. One of the things that I realized a while back that really changed the way that I approach relationships, especially like um, asking forgiveness, is is realizing when uh, looking back on you know that moment and realizing. Whether I really did intend harm or not. And, and I really, you know, I started realizing that more often than not that I actually did sometimes <laughs> intend the harm, right? And it was disingenuous of me to say that I didn't and that it was much more meaningful for me to admit that, to speak that, say, you know what? I, I did feel like I needed to quote unquote harm. You or that was I was being mean. I was intentionally being mean, and 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 actually admitting that is a lot more um, helpful to the overall healing of it rather than trying to you know tell the person that I didn't intend. Now, obviously, there's plenty of instances where where I don't intend, but you know, so much in in terms of apologies, um, honesty about our true intentions is is very important, and sometimes. We can't be honest until we have sat down and really examined and looked back at our own intentions, and uh, kind of getting rid of that false self, right? You know, not letting our ego tell us we didn't really mean so, but but realizing, oh, you know, in the moment I really was actually being mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that happens to me far more often than I want to admit, right? But it it does. It takes a lot of takes a lot of courage and humility and authenticity and and vulnerability to really come to those moments of of giving up that ego and and of reconciling with those who who in the moment we've we, there's I don't know of a single argument or of a single mean word that's ever been uttered that it didn't feel justified in the moment
0: right right <laughs> and there's, <laughs> that's, all, how there's
1: all, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works that's <laughs> how it works and it's it's awful that it works that way we can always justify an unkind word. And we can always justify the things that we do and the things that we say. And there are a thousand ways to do it. And we can always justify away reconciliation. In fact, I have found it easier to reconcile away uh, reconciliation than, than the mean things that I've ever said and done. And <laughs> that's, an, that's a hard one to grapple with.
0: It is. <laughs> Moving
1: into section se- uh, 72. I don't know if you had anything before uh, 3 and 4, but I had some thoughts on 3 and 4 that said, Verily in this thing ye have done wisely, for it is required of the Lord at the very hand of every steward to render an account of his stewardship, both in time and eternity. For he who is faithful and wise in time is accounted worthy to inherit the mansions prepared for him of my Father. Now, section 72 is a very administrative section, and we know from, from last week and, and a couple of the weeks before that, I, I don't have the gift of, of, of that whole administration thing. <laughs> That's not me. Like, whenever I get across, like, these administrative sections, it's just my eyes glaze over, and, and, and I have to really pour my intentionality into these, uh, these verses. I'm like, all right. Well, what's he saying? <laughs> it's just not. And I think it's so hilarious because so many other scriptures like jump out and just in vibrant colors and, and, and meanings and, and whatever. And like, look at me. And then I get into like administrative verses and it's like the lone and dreary world. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to even be here.
0: <laughs>
1: and I think it's just hilarious because it's, it's always been that way for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, there, there is some, some stuff here and we can pull out. I, We could talk specifically about bishop, but this does go back, I think, to our discussion we were just having about, you know, being truthful and speaking your trauma and telling your story, so to speak, and, you know, rendering account of your stewardship. And I think whether it's done in this formal way to a bishop in an institutional sense, or just to, you know, confiding in a friend, or at the very least, like, doing it for yourself, like writing it down. I think this is why a, a journal can be really valuable, which is something that I don't do. But <laughs> a journal can be really <laughs> valuable for a person because you're, you know, you're kind of giving an account of your stewardship to yourself or to the Lord or however you want to look at it for your audience. Um, and and there's there's a lot of utility in that um, in terms of like examining yourself and your intentions throughout the day and and hey, did I. What patterns am I seeing in, in my behavior? What does this tell me about about where I am in my relationship with, with God and with others? And so, there's a lot of moments of of accounting stewardship there, and that can formally be done. Um, I think that could be a potentially good role for for a, a bishop, um, but that would be just in like an institutionalized formal sense. Surely, there's other ways that that can can come about. On a more regular basis, whether it's with a spouse or a close friend, or just like I said, writing it down for yourself, I think this is a valuable um, exercise to account your stewardship. We get sort of this this ways that this is all supposed to happen, like in a material or or temporal sense with Zion, and then we end with a couple of verses that um, I don't I don't know what they mean. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't even bring them up, but but uh, I'm going to bring them up because they 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 stick out like a sore thumb to me. <laughs> Verses 25 and 26, and and if you had some stuff before this, obviously you can comment. But it says, "Let them carry up unto the bishop a certificate from three elders of the church, or a certificate from the bishop. Otherwise, he who shall go up to the land of Zion shall not be accounted as a wise steward. Wise steward. This is an ensemble. Amen. So. I don't know what this means. <laughs> it, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of strange to me. I mean, it, maybe if I lived in 1830, it wouldn't be strange to me, and this would be all like, "Oh yeah, this is totally normal." But um, it, it seems odd to me, and i I think I kind of take it as a way or a practical way of regulating migration to. Jackson County or quote unquote, the land of Zion at this time, you know, uh, the Lord had told them not to go in haste, that things needed to be done in their own due time. And yet we still have a lot of people very anxious to get there because they think that, you know, it's all, uh, sunshine and rainbows and unicorns there in Jackson County. And, um, this is just like maybe one way that, um, Joseph Smith is interpreting the will of the Lord as, Hey, you know, let's, Let's take it slow. Let's go orderly. Let's not uh, rush there and think that everything's all the grass is greener there, right? And everything's going to be better. So,
1: yeah, yeah, I think that's that's. I don't have anything to add to any of that.
0: <laughs> as good as any <laughs> other, right? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like how do I follow? I don't know how to follow up with it. <laughs> that's good stuff. <laughs> it, you know, moving on to sec, I didn't have anything before uh, before that, so that that's awesome. Um, on section seventy three. This is where we begin to have Joseph and Sidney come back to translating. "Quote unquote." I you can't see me, but I have air quotes up uh, <laughs> translating. And maybe for the way I say translating, that kind of gives the the idea of definitely air quotes see across.
0: it in my mind.
1: You can see it in your mind. okay. Well, there it is. <laughs> so Joseph is translating the Bible, and and this is a really kind of interesting experience. So now he goes back to Sidney Rigdon, and they don't actually end up. Uh, finishing it but i think the story is absolutely fascinating as to what's actually going on with the translating aspect of this and 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 it goes to, i think it's important to know at least where kind of recent scholarship is about it because it really helps us to identify how the revelations were being given how these things were coming about kind of the foundation that how we can even go get our own revelations, as it were. So at BYU, my New Testament professor, and I, you know, I was taking my little uh, religion classes, right, my devotional classes, I, I took New Testament 1, just like four Gospels, from Dr. Thomas Waymond. And he was an amazing guy. He, I just absolutely loved this guy to death. And, and so he ended up getting together with uh, Haley Wilson, who I believe is one of the students that he he was working with. And they wrote a paper and they did a bunch of research and they come to find out there's some really interesting passages of the translation that give us a lot of clues into what Joseph is doing. So, as we get into section seventy-three and kind of what's going on in the translation, um, I read this to you a little bit earlier, Ben, but I'm going to go ahead and reread this again and just kind of give you an idea about what is going on, because Thomas Wayman and Haley Wilson ended up writing a paper, and on the BYU uh, on the BYU website is kind of a long abstract about what their paper is about, and that's what I'm going to read from. So it's kind of detail what the paper is about. But this is from March 16th, 2017, so it's been just over four years that this uh, this paper has been out. But in reading it, it says, The following are a few key passages from the article we wrote together. When we first started to project our goal was the following, to compare the changes made by Joseph Smith to the Bible with contemporary commentaries of his day. So t- to say it again is that they wanted to compare to see if any of Joseph Smith's translations of the Bible, uh, quote-unquote translations of the Bible, were synonymous with any of the contemporary biblical commentaries of
0: what unique additions did he did he make maybe
1: yes and correct and what and what else what was new for joseph than, than what was in existence in the day And then going back to the text, it says, And in so doing, I hope to tentatively reconstruct the 19th century academic Christian world in which he brought forth the Bible translation. Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible has attracted significant attention in recent decades, drawing on the interest of a wide variety of academics and those who affirm its nearly canonical status in the LDS scriptural canon. More recently, in conducting new research into the origins of Smith's Bible translation, we uncovered evidence that Smith and his associates used a readily available Bible commentary while compiling the new Bible translation, or more properly, a revision of the King James Bible. The commentary was Adam Clark's famous Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments, and was a mainstay for Methodist theologians and biblical scholars alike, and was one of the most widely available commentaries in the mid-1820s and 1830s in America. Direct borrowing from the source has not previously been connected to Smith's translation efforts, and the fundamental question of what Smith meant by the term quote-unquote translation with respect to his efforts to rework the biblical text can now be reconsidered in light of this new evidence. What is noteworthy in detailing the usage of this source is that Adam Clark's textual emendations come through Smith's translations as inspired changes to the text. Moreover, the questions of what Smith meant by the term translation should be broadened to include what now appears to have been an academic interest in the update of the textual, the text of the Bible itself. This new evidence effectively forces reconsideration of Smith's translation project, particularly his Bible project, and how he used academic sources while simultaneously melding his own prophetic inspiration into the resulting text. In presenting the evidence for Smith's usage of Clark, our paper also addressed the larger question of what it means for Smith to have used an academic theological Bible commentary in the process of producing a text that he subsequently defined as a translation. In doing so, we first presented the evidence for Smith's reliance upon Adam Clark to establish the nature of Smith's usage of Clark. Following that discussion, we engaged the question of how Smith approached the question of the quality of the KJV that he was using in 1830 and what the term translation meant for both Smith and his close associates. Finally, we offered a suggestion as to how Smith came to use Clark as well as assessing the overall question of what these findings suggest regarding Smith as a translator and his various translation projects. Okay, that was quite a mouthful. <laughs> what
0: does it mean?
1: <laughs> what does it all mean? <laughs> so, so, in short, what this means is that Joseph Smith was found to be using a very common Methodist biblical commentary of his day. And in doing this, he was using this and including passages, long passages at times, from the commentary that made its way into what's called the JST now, or the Joseph mm-hmm. Smith Translation of the Bible.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so what they found is that there were many long passages of Clark that had entered into the JST. So when we're reading the JST, and in sometimes our text will show us what the JST says, and many times it's simply just lifted now, I don't want to use the word plagiarized because that has a lot of negative terms and it wasn't really a thing back in the day, but it was lifted without citing it and made as though it were a translation itself. Mm-hmm. So in this kind of way, it acts as though it was like a, divinely, a, a divine or an inspired biblical commentary, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, their whole paper, and if you want to go look it up, you you can just Google Haley Wilson and Thomas Wayment, Ancient Scripture, and it's called A Recently Recovered Source Rethinking Joseph Smith's Bible Translation. And it'll get you to the page there on BYU.edu. And so, I think this is just interesting is because what this does is this shows how God is speaking in and through Joseph. And it's not always in this immediate downpour of revelation and kind of out through joseph as a perfect conduit of god but there's also a, that may have happened in multiple cases but it's also there's a different part of this quote-unquote translation whatever whatever that means and wayment and, and Haley go through and they talk about you know what they think that means and you can go read it if you if you want to but again getting back here to section 73 It's just interesting that they begin this process again, and that's where they are at in doing that. So all of that discussion, and now we are in section 74. So Ben, why don't you tell us about section 74 and a little bit about how all of this discussion that we've just had about this biblical commentary and the translation process and what that all means, what does that have anything to do with section 74?
0: Well, so, you know, to to sort of summarize again what you were talking about, that As Joseph Smith is going through with Sidney Rigdon and, quote-unquote, doing their translation of the Bible, um, much of what they come up with is informed or pulled from this commentary, this previous commentary. And then it's maybe expounded or added upon or at at times tweaked by Joseph's own understanding and inspiration that he gets as as he's going through the particulars of that and what is what and sorted it out. Um, I think the paper gets more into the weeds of that. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So if you want to know the particulars, okay, which word is from the commentary and which word is from Joseph Smith, you know, <laughs> you'd have to go and and I think it it kind of does a lot of that analysis in in a very careful way. But uh, but but all that to say that. You know this this term translation is used very loosely by Joseph Smith, and we see that it's used in in a lot of different ways. You know because the way that the Book of Mormon was quote unquote translated wasn't from a commentary, right? <laughs> like <laughs> there's there's nothing to be found in in any other sources like we have with the Book of Mormon. Yeah, you know, the you know there's all kinds of theories about where some of the stuff comes from in, in terms of uh, plots and stuff for the Book of Mormon, but but none of it really pans out to to what the actual text says. So all that to say, you know, the process of translation, again, there's those air quotes for the Book of Mormon seems to have been something very different in nature from what the translation of the Bible is, even though I believe, you know, Joseph Smith talks about using the seer stone in the process of the translation of the Bible from from time to time. Don't quote me on that. I might be wrong, but I believe that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, all this being, you know, different aspects of the how Joseph Smith views his seership, right, and what translation is, and then again we have a totally new way of coming about with the Book of Moses, because the Book of Moses is, in essence, part of this translation of the Bible, but in almost the entire thing is is completely new material right? This isn't like some commentary. This is whole new experiences, like particularly of Moses and and Enoch that uh, aren't pulled out of some commentary. Some of them can relate to some apocryphal uh, sources that you can see at the time, especially with like the book of Enoch. But again, this is a different type of quote unquote translation. And then the book of Abraham, you know, that's a whole new different type of translation, which opens up like a whole nother number 10 can of worms, right?
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so, so again, all that to say that this word translation has at least three or four different meanings as we might term it today. And I believe this paper and then there's, there's been some other commentary since explores Joseph Smith's different, uh, ways of viewing translation. And it's, it's just very interesting to note that the word translation ironically doesn't mean translation <laughs> in in how we might term it today right and when when they go back to do this work um one of the things that that happens is a commentary on 1 Corinthians 7:14 so this this is sort of a an interlude that happens in their translation of the bible they you know ostensibly they're going from you know Genesis to Revelation, but they do make occasional jumps. And 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 you know, oh, somebody asks a question about this, and they go and and do sort of a translation slash commentary on that. So section seventy four is this translation slash commentary. I talked about earlier in the introduction how this this doesn't read like most of these other explicit revelations, right? Even though it's called Revelation um, in the section heading. It doesn't start off with the, you know, listen to the words of of Jesus Christ, your Lord, or Alpha and Omega, that type of thing. It just kind of breaks right into a very type of scholarly commentary on this. It brings up the topic of circumcision. So um, here we have, starting in verse three, it came to pass that there arose a great contention Among the people concerning the law of circumcision, for the unbelieving husband was desirous that his children should be circumcised and become subject to the law of Moses, which law was fulfilled. And it came to pass that the children being brought up in subjection to the law of Moses gave heed to the traditions of their fathers, and believed not the gospel of Christ, wherein they became unholy. Wherefore, for this cause, the apostle wrote unto the church, giving unto them a commandment, not of the Lord, but of himself, that a believer should not be united to an unbeliever except the law of Moses should be done away among them, that their children might remain without circumcision and that their tradition might be done away, which saith that little children are unholy, for it was had among the Jews, but little children are holy, being sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ, and this is what the scriptures mean. Okay, so we start unpacking a bunch of different concepts here because here, uh, at least in verse 4, We have this idea that we have a tradition which was established by a prophet of God, Moses, right? This is an ordinance that the Lord says, you have to do it. And we even see in the Old Testament that like if people don't do it, like the Lord says, kill them, (laughs) right? So like, (laughs) this is important. (laughs) You got to circumcise your kids on pain of death. And so we have this super important ordinance that becomes this tradition. And yet all of a sudden – it creates a problem with the church when Christ comes and he preaches the gospel because that ordinance has been tied so strongly to this tradition that has persisted for a long time. And when Christ comes, he upsets that tradition so fundamentally that the only way to depart from that tradition is to do away with all of the things that have to do with it. Because otherwise, if you if you pursue that, direction with those ordinances and everything, the strength, the pull of that tradition is too strong. They're saying for these children to go that way rather than to follow the church and follow Christ and the apostles. So the idea is that you have to get rid of this ordinance. You have to get rid of this tradition in order to return back to what is foundational what is a true principle of the gospel that Christ taught. Because this tradition, which was originally designed to point people towards a relationship with God, has now become something that points them away from God. So we have to get rid of it because it's no longer helping us along the path. So this, this, I think, really brings out, one of the points that uh, you've made a few times, which is that these these religious modes that we engage in, whether they be ordinances or or experiences um, that we label uh, with with different terms and, and symbols, they they are all good and important, insofar as they point us to Christ and a relationship with God, and if they're not doing that, then. They're not good, right? So uh, so Paul writes and he says, this ordinance, this thing isn't working for us anymore. We have to stop it. We have to get rid of it. And what I think is an interesting commentary in this is he says that he gave unto them a commandment, not of the Lord, but of himself, right? And um, I'm not sure how many people would take issue with that, you know, that we have like an actual scripture from Paul that people are saying, that's not really from the Lord. That's just Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, there's probably a lot of things that Paul wrote that I could go back and be like, that's not the Lord. That's just Paul. And it's okay because Paul's Paul. And um, that that often we do view things that a person who is in a position of authority that we might call a prophet or apostle or, or whatever, you know, a prophet. We can do it in the scriptures. We could do it, you know, history of the church or whatever may come out with something that, like this where, hey, we're changing this or we're getting rid of this ordinance or we're doing this because we're straying from our purpose, and our purpose is this. And it's sort of their own personal uh, intention and design in order to point people to Christ, in order to point people to God. But the the meat and the root of this is that, hey, it's possible there's some people out there that circumcision was still kind of working for in terms of that relationship. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, not to get into the nitty gritty of it, but I don't understand how that helps a baby uh, have a relationship with God. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, you you could come up with any other type of of ordinance that, hey – that works for this person, right? That's a mode that works for this person. And so this commandment isn't of the Lord. The Lord's not coming and telling you, stop that ordinance because it's not, it's not pointing you to me. Only you personally can really know that, right? Whether something is working for you. But, you know, Paul comes and he writes to them and, and seeing the situation and what is really happening among the people, he says, hey, as a, in general, this is not working for you guys. You're you're not being you're not staying united. Um, it's causing division in your families. This is this is not a good thing. And so we have to let that be, and we have to move in a different direction so that we're more united in the body of Christ.
1: Yeah, I thought I was going to have more to say when I got into that, but you just said everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's great. That's great. I mean, it is. It's for me right now, especially with my, with my own discipleship. I do. I see things. I see like everything as a mode. This modality of the gospel. It's, I see prayer as a mode. I see scriptures as a mode. I see the church as a mode. I, I see the sacrament as a mode going up into nature. Everything that, everything that is anything that I can direct my intentionality into that produces an experience with God. Is a mode for me. So right. it's, it's it's like getting up in the morning and just like basking in the sun, and as it comes up, that's a mode of experiencing God. If my intentionality is in that moment with God, I'm experiencing it with God. And we find out like the word of wisdom, um, wearing garments. You know, even the clothes we wear, the food that we eat, the tithing that we pay. These are all. This is all modality of religion. It's all the things that we do that we focus ourselves into to be able to experience those things, and and I love there I love there what you had said Ben about how I've said it is that modes are good until they're not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's just kind of it kind of is that simple for me, and
0: it takes a lot of really- self awareness you know to recognize that, and and you have to make a decision at that point. Okay, is there is there something I need to change about how I'm viewing the mode in order to give it more life or has it run its course and I need to let it go so that I can move on to something else. The Lord has has for me in terms of a way to experience him. The answer to that is not obvious in an objective sense. It, each person has to work that out. Right.
1: Oh, I, I love the way you put that, that to give mode a new life. Man, I've, I've been looking for a way to be able to explain that. <laughs> I have like two analogies that take me like 10 minutes apiece and I try to explain it to my wife and my wife's like, no, those analogies are not any good. You can't say that. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. So I've been searching for things, but I love that we have to find out whether or not those modes, we just breathe new life into them again. And we come into where then, then they become more meaningful to us again, or if it really comes in time to where it is just time to let old things go. And to expand into a new life with God and and to become that aware, and the more that I have experimented with that idea, the fear of being deceived, the the fear of you know i I don't it, I know it lands for some, and so I, I don't want to throw a universal blanket statement over thing, but it doesn't land for me personally. The questions like who would you be if the if the book of mormon wasn't in your life or the church wasn't in your life or the sure. word of wisdom wasn't a in your life those
0: hypotheticals th- yeah
1: those hypotheticals um because for me anyway and, and this isn't to say it lands for everybody this way it's just it's i'm, I'm making a personal statement but for me it lands as a motive and a motive fear it because it's like man what would happen and it's it's like a fear that without this i would i would have been this and in fact, it was my wife at one point. She goes, you really, cause I was going off on the rails one day. She's like, if it wasn't for th- this, I would be a drunk alcoholic drug addict. I'd be a drug addict in the middle of a curb peeing all over myself. <laughs> like, is this, I don't know why that's where I'd always go. Right. And I've never like, like my particular,
0: that's Shiloh's <laughs> default state,
1: <laughs> I, which is so weird because. That's not my, my thing. Like, like everybody's got their thing, but like drinking alcohol or smoke, that's never been my thing. Like I've got right. my own things, but that one has never been mine. But yet I always say that without the church, that would be my thing. And it, it just, it wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so my wife knows that about me and she, and she's like, are, are you sure? And, and I was like, maybe. <laughs> and so I had to like reevaluate it until finally I'm like, "No, no, that's not who I would have been." But anyway, it it's just to be able to to express and to, and to see what the love of God brings us into. The, there was someone who posted on my on uh, on something that I posted on Facebook uh a couple mu- either a month ago or 2 months ago. And I forget even the context of what the original post was about, but this person, she responded and said, People like cows can be contained within an organization in one of two ways. Either you feed them regularly and you can, you have something that they want to stay for because it edifies them and fills them and they want to stay. Or you've got to build a corral around them to control them and to make them stay. Mm-hmm. And that really had an impact on me. I'd never really considered—I'd <laughs> never considered my human condition as a cow before. <laughs> and so, <laughs> as, I was, as I was sitting there, I've, I've wondered and I've thought about that for a very long time. And I know so many of us are so different. We all come to the gospel with so many different ways. And for me, I'm looking for something to keep me to stay there with the edification. To stay there with God, to keep that edification. And whenever I find God, man, it's there. It's there. And it's kind of weird because as I've, we've talked about this a lot before, in that when we truly seek to experience the awe of God, and to, and, and all we have to do is just glimpse, even just once, just glimpse His mercy and His grace in a moment When we did not qualify for it, and when we were not, quote-unquote, in our mind or in any other objective metric, seemingly objective metric anyway, worthy of it, and God comes in that moment and rescues you, has rescued me, in that one divine moment of grace and love, it's like, like I've said, I can spend a thousand lifetimes of, of perfect sinless lifetimes and never once qualify for that kind of sublime awe. And, and so that really does become that motivator. So I look for God in those things. I, I look for that kind of experience and awe of God now in the modes that I partake of. And man, it's made a lot of modes, but a lot more meaningful for me. So yeah. that when I do partake in them, they produce things. And it's actually exciting now because – Then it's not just going to church to be able to, you know, just to kind of go through the rote and the, and the thing to feel the spirit. I I don't want to, I got to be careful how I say this because I don't want to diminish other people's influences. What I'm doing is I'm speaking of my experience. This is where you are.
0: Yeah.
1: This is where I am, right? I was becoming very rote with my discipleship. You go to, I went to church. I just had the sacrament. I would feel, I would feel good. I would feel the spirit as I would, as I would deem the spirit. Um, I was feeling good about myself and but it was just it was just it was good but then I I really came to a place where like is this it? Is this really it? Like like my life, my existence, my time on this earth, my relationship with God. This this is this is it. This right. is the epitome of everything that that the the grand architect and creator of heaven and earth and that which all things are that they are and and this and my experience that i'm giving to it this is it and it was kind of in that question where i was like that this can't be it right and so then at that point i was like what am i missing out and then you know, I've explained how I went to a three-day conference right about the same time, and it completely and radically altered and transformed my life. And I walked out of there knowing I would never be the same person that I was afterwards as I was going into it before. And as I walked out of it, I, there's this little voice in my head, and it, and I and I know that little voice, and I, and I know who's, who that little voice is. It's asked me to do all sorts of things, and... And I always argue against it, but it's always, I always need to follow that voice. I came and it said, for the first time in your life, you've actually experienced what it means, what your baptism symbolically means.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You've experienced your baptism. And that was such a powerful moment for me. That's, that, that that's like one of those like top five moments in my life. It might slide down to six, but I think it's going to stay in the top five, (laughs) right? (laughs) And where, where I was like, yeah, I'm a completely different person. The old me is gone and dead. And what stands here is a new person committed with this relationship that I want to have with God, with being authentic and actually being a truthful, honest person and moving forward in my life. So... Yeah, these modes, I I love the way you said it, breathing life back into modes. So if, so I challenge anyone listening, if there's a mode in your life that you have experienced God before, whether it be reading scriptures or saying prayers or going out into nature or going on long drives, you know, I know that that's a big thing for a lot of people. My son, for instance, I had no idea. He came, he came to me not too long ago. He's like, Hey, dad, can, can we go on a trip sometime? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Johnny. We we have all sorts of trips planned this summer. He's like, No, 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 no. Like, like at night. Huh. I'm like, I'm like at night. He's like, Yeah, like when it gets really dark and the and the headlights come on, and you just go down the road and you're just driving for a long distance at night, and you're, <clears throat> and you're on the highway, and you just moved, and he he just starts like explaining this entire like scenario, right?
0: Johnny, he's like I hear you.
1: <laughs> Do I you like that, that too?
0: too? Oh, I love
1: it. <laughs> is that a vibe for you?
0: <laughs> it is. I don't know why.
1: And and yeah. he's like he goes, "Dad, that's like my favorite thing in the world." <laughs> and I'm like, I had no idea like that was hit that was his vibe. That's his mode, right? He like like getting out there late at night and driving out in the middle of the freeway in the middle of nowhere. That's his that's his jam. It's
0: peaceful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, <laughs> so he loves that. He wants to. He wants to go yeah. do that. So, so I'm gonna have to get. A, I'm getting a plan and a time to go out there and just to k- stay up all night and go driving around with him, I guess, and loading up on caffeine at one point. I don't know. But we'll <laughs> we'll make it happen. Um, but even if that's your jam, that's your mode, and you can get in there and you can connect with God. Man, I, there was one thing in my life I wish I would have known at a much younger age: is that God is not hindered by the modes we want to access Him by. Right. If you feel something and you connect with God and there is something that is meaningful and you can connect with God, man, do it. Just just do it and then see where it takes you.
0: I think of that a little bit when, when we talk about Alma, you know, in Alma 32 where he's, he says experiment on my word. And you've talked about this before, you know, experimenting with, with different ways of, of experiencing God. You know, same route there: experience and experiment. And you were mentioning, you know, if if there's a mode that you have experienced God through before, and maybe for some reason it's just not really clicking for you anymore. There's different ways you can go about that. I I, I like we're kind of delving into uh, contemplation podcast stuff here, Shallow, <laughs> which is okay. You know, which is there's okay. No, there's which no hard is- line. <laughs> There's no hard line between this. You know, we're not invading territory, right? No borders. Right. <laughs> like I said, you know, there's there's two ways that you can approach that. If you can re examine that and you can go to the Lord um in, in whatever way you, you choose, and you can basically just say, hey, is this a mode that could still bring meaning and 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 value to me? And if so, you know, show me how. Show me how. And if not, then give me the courage to let it go and move on to something that, that really can. I think that that's a way that people could approach that in, in really exploring more territory of their experience with God. Um, and again, either that means resurrecting old modes, uh, breathing new life into them, or it means letting them be and, and moving on.
1: All right, Ben. So bring us into 75. We we have 75 here. This is an interesting section because it's given to so many different people. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing William McClellan, Luke Johnson, Orson Hyde, Samuel Smith, yeah. Lyman Johnson. I mean, we got a lot of names on here, and everybody's got a different kind of vibe going. I like the section heading here, and we've talked about this stuff before, where it's, at this conference, Joseph was sustained and ordained president of the high priesthood. Certain elders had encountered difficulty in bringing men into an understanding of their message and they desire to learn more detail as to their immediate duties i think this is i think this is really an interesting way of framing what whatever we're going to talk about here because <laughs> you have these guys who are going out as missionaries and nobody's listening to them and I, I think it's the salesman in me that's been a salesman for 15 years and have gone through so many sales meetings. When I go out and I have like multiple days of nothing, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And so like you're yeah. really intent and like listening to like the trainers that he's like giving you. And, and on the trainer's side, I've been on the trainer's side before and just like, I don't know why that person's not doing very well. What is the, Why is that person not <laughs> what doing, am I doing wrong? Well? I have no you know? idea what you're doing <laughs> <wrong>. <laughs> And I've been on both sides of that equation so many times, but you're just desperate for to get an answer as to why, why what you think you're doing sucks so bad, and why why it is that you can't figure it out. When I see this, there certain elders had encountered difficulty in bringing men to an understanding of their message, and they wanted to know what their duties were. Like like, what do we do now? I, I think it's just an interesting question. It's that it's the same. It's the same human experience over and over again. What I experienced and what I, you've experienced it on the doors too. Uh, you've you've done door knocking before in your life, yeah. um, both on and off your mission. And so there's like this: what am I doing wrong? Tell me what I'm doing wrong. It's it's like h- help me be better, and tell me what to do. And God is so much more concerned. I've learned with kind of the direction we're headed in the journey than he is about the destination i mean the desert we're never getting to the real destination in this life anyway everything is about the journey and so as as god's kind of pointing us down like what do i do and god's like well let's talk about who you are first no 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 No, tell me what i need to go do and god's like let's talk about who you are he's like no (laughs) god i want to know what i'm supposed to do about it and god's like fine go go do this right
0: (laughs) yeah yeah, it, it is interesting, you know, the I was thinking about that that concept of the journey and the destination. You know, like even if we talk about in terms of after this life, the Latter day Saint narrative on that in terms of the plan of salvation is just like, well, you know, the destination is just another journey. <laughs> so <laughs> the 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 journey is the destination. <laughs> the yeah. destination is the journey. I really liked uh, verse 2 here and how this is phrased. It made me think of of what it means to go and preach the gospel. And I'm not sure if this is necessarily how they understood it or, or how it was intended, but this is what I pulled from it this time. Verse 2 says, Hearken, O ye who have given your names, to go forth to proclaim my gospel and to prune my vineyard. You know, um, I almost could throw in the word up, given up your names to go forth to proclaim my gospel. So if we go back to section four, which is what we call it, like the missionary section, right? So, And if, if we, we don't call it, then we do now. <laughs> then we do now. I'm going to call it the missionary section. There's lots of really uh, great things in there when we talked about that. This process, right, of giving up, sacrificing, you know, what you feel is important for what the Lord is calling you to, your desires to serve. And here, you know, your name is something, is a symbol of your identity, right? For instance, when we're baptized and and we take upon ourselves the name of Christ, that's a symbol of our identity. You know, we're identifying ourselves with Christ now, and your name may be a symbol of your identity as an individual, but then also as part of a family, and so, you know, given up your names or given your names to go forth to proclaim the gospel, you you have to, in order to go out, there's that emptying, like in a beatitude way, right? You've got to divest yourselves of those identities, become meek, so that you inherit the earth. So you're symbolically of that. You're kind of you could say you could give up your name because it's it's this identity that you're willing to divest yourself of in order to take on what the Lord has for you to go and do. I don't believe in necessarily an objective sense that the Lord actually asks you to to give up your identity as an individual, but he does ask us to give up our false identities in order to, to discover who we truly are. And symbolically that happens when we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and realize that's who we really are. We are Christ in that sense. That's, that's our true self, is, is this the epitome of who we can be, this archetype of who we can be, which is, is Christ, or of who we really are if we will just accept that. This probably isn't intentional, but we could pull up the symbolism anyway. That It's interesting when, when missionaries are sent out, right, that they don't really go by their first name for the most part anymore, right? They, they get a title, elder, and then their, their last name. And it's almost like there's that moment of a symbolic sacrifice, a, a false self or identity in order to, to go out and represent Christ. And I don't know if it's ever viewed like that by people. I, don't, I didn't view it exactly that way when I was a missionary, but um, this verse sort of frames it that way for me, and I think it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, I do think it's interesting. You know, I, I think that it pulls over – verse 21 is, where, is is what stood out to me the most in section 75. Because it ties into the whole dusting your feet off, uh, section things that we've talked about before. Um, dust your, f- you know, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against the people who don't listen to you. Yeah. And it just, it's so, it's so funny, but I love here in verse 21. And you shall be filled with joy and gladness and know this, that in the day of judgment, you shall be judges of that house and condemn them. And it shall be more tolerable for the heathen in the day of judgment than for that house. <laughs> like, okay, hold on. let's back up for a second. Yeah. In the New Testament, we had some apostles who, as they are headed down the street, the apostles like stop off into the Samaritan village and are like, come listen to us about Jesus. And everyone's like, no. And they kick him out and they get out there and they're like, Jesus, they didn't listen to us. And Jesus is like, okay. And they're like, let's call down fire from heaven and consume and destroy them. And Jesus is like,
0: "What are you talking
1: about? <laughs> <laughs> or not? <laughs> like, why would, why would we do that? It's like they said no, and it's like you want to kill him. And like they said no, Jesus, we should kill him. We we, we should like destroy them. And Jesus is like, mm, you don't understand what we're doing yet, right?" Mm-hmm. I see that same thing in these verses and I'm like why is God the one then being like the apostles yeah. and, uh, and and these early missionaries. You know, as I've been thinking about this today, uh, you know, it, this goes again back I'm so grateful for the beatitudes. <laughs> and it shall and you shall be filled with joy and gladness. You know, that's the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they shall be filled. And they be filled with righteousness that righteousness, that joy, that gladness. But as we've talked about with the Beatitudes for over and over and over again, if, you, if you've gotten to the fourth Beatitude, you've had to work on Beatitude 1 through 3, which is that poor in spirit of emptying out your egos, your false identities to this world, emptying out everything, and then standing there in your mourning, of mourning lost identity, and, and all the attachments to this world, and standing there then the meekness and realizing you don't belong anywhere anymore because you've given up all of your identities. And now because you belong nowhere, you belong everywhere. So it's the meek who inherit the earth. And then it's in that phase where we hunger and thirst after righteousness and we are filled. And so in verse 21, he's talking about these people who are filled. And so how is it that a person who's filled with righteousness after they've emptied and mourned and are meek then now they want to turn around and be joyful and glad in their enemies being destroyed. So what came to me as I've been thinking about this today is, you know, when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to go love your enemies, you know, bless them that curse you and do good to them to hate you and pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. When he tells us to love our enemies, Jesus posits that we have enemies. To love our enemies, Jesus says there has to be an enemy. And, and this is, this has always been peculiar for me. Why is Jesus positing an enemy? And, and so it's been my experimentation. It's been what I found through my own personal experimentation that it was through loving my enemies that I came out onto the other side of that con- that, that experiment and that experience realizing they were never my enemies to begin with. The construct of enemy was was something that I made in my pride and my ego, but it was through the process of love that shed my false self and allowed my true self to come forward to the recognition of seeing them as their true self, that they were never my enemy to begin with. And yet Christ still posited enemy. And so I thought for a while, I'm like, well, then why didn't Jesus just come right out and say, Shiloh, you don't have any enemies. Just love everybody. You don't have any enemies. Why not just start with that? And at least for me, it's, it's become clear for myself that if Jesus wanted to have an analytical statement of just understanding things in my head, he would have just said that. And I would have, been, and I would have worked on that and we, I could have experimented on that but it's through experimenting and actually experiencing love and the awe and wonder of love towards someone that my ego sees as an enemy. That it it demonstrates and it shows me in ways that words cannot communicate the power of love in destroying the false self. Love breaks through all the crags and the cracks of the false self and reveals the true self who has always already been under the surface. And that's not something that I could have understood rationally. I could have talked about it. This goes back to that conversation about salt. You know, just after Jesus gives the the Beatitudes, he says, you're the salt of the earth and a salt has lost its savor. And he starts talking about salt as a taste. And he goes, you can talk about it. You can pontificate about where to find it, its usefulness, its chemical makeup you can talk about how it mixes with other things you can talk about putting in food you can talk about all sorts of things and its necessity for life but unless you taste it you cannot communicate taste unless you've actually tasted it no words can get that you to that experience and so what i find here at least how this scripture speaks to me and i again you know, there's a lot of times, Ben, you and I talk about these things and, and I, I feel as a matter of just honesty, there are times when I look at this, and I'm like, I don't know if that was their actual experience. I don't know right. if the way that it's, this is standing out to me was the actual experience that they were having in the message. But scripture is a matter of interpretation about how it lands for us in the time that it lands for. Um, that's another discussion for another time. But at least as I'm reading this and it's standing out to me is, as I see God coming here, we have to recognize, so next next week is going to be section 76, and we're going to talk about the three degrees of glory. And I will say this about the three degrees of glory. Brigham Young observed that because of how lenient the three degrees of glory are to the whole plan of salvation construct, that it's so lenient upon the sinner according to their understanding of it. I mean, we have to understand is that you had Calvinism and Methodism and, and, and the Baptists and, and Unitarians. You had this strict heaven and hell and a really strict hell concept here. And so when the, the Latter day Saint narrative comes out where you have three degrees of glory and we really don't have a concept of hell that follows from like Dante's Inferno and his Divine Comedy that doesn't follow the, you know, the, the multiple layers of hell. And of pitchforks and of that kind of burning, that's not the LDS construct of hell. But yet it's these three degrees of glory that even the worst of the worst of the worst gets the lowest part of the glory, which is even better than this life. That idea of mercy set so sideways with people in the church, people left the church because it wasn't vengeful enough on the sinner. Yeah. Right? And Mm -hmm. so as I look, we have to recognize who these people are in their context. These are people who are born and raised in this new I mean old Americana identity, but new Americana Christian identity, where hell is this really strong place for people who really deserve it. And it's in that same concept, now prior to section seventy six still, that you can still see God saying, Oh, I'm not gonna fight this battle with you about who deserves to get destroyed and who doesn't get to deserve to be destroyed. I'm not going to fight that battle with you right now. That's not the hill I'm going to die on. So here, let me throw you a bone. Follow the Beatitudes and be filled with righteousness. Hey, and if you want to go out and destroy your enemies afterwards and you want to find that as they get destroyed, that's awesome. But you can't go through that process of the Beatitude process. And be filled with righteousness, and not like Enos pray to God for not just yourself and for your family, but you begin to pray for your enemies, and not just for your enemies, but He prays for the Lamanites as His brethren. He gives up the entire concept of enemy altogether. And then we come back again to the story of Jesus with the apostles and the trying to burn down the Samaritan village just because they said no. <laughs> That the whole concept from God's eyes was always about mercy. It was always about reconciliation. And that all of this talk of judgment and destruction and, and all of these things are really to satisfy our sense of justice. Not God's, our sense of justice. God has always called us into the relationship to love our enemies, to forgive. And then through that experience of actually tasting the salt of the gospel, something that words cannot express, through experiencing it coming out the other side, we recognize there was never any enemy to begin with, and I don't need to see my brother burn simply because he said no to my message one day.
0: You know, I, in this verse 21, I, I see this as rather than, you know, we think that there's some particular destination that we're arriving at, as you were talking about. Like this ability, okay, if we can attain to a glory that means we get to condemn our enemies, then, then that means we've arrived, right? <laughs> and, and rather than the Lord saying, you know, well, that's the wrong destination. He says, well, okay, let's, let's set that aside for a minute, right? And walk down this path and, um, see where it takes you. And so he gives us this journey to go on. And when, as we're going on that journey, we are realizing that the destination we thought we wanted to go to, you know, isn't, isn't going to be that destination anymore because of the experience that we have down this path. I kind of see that as what you were, you were talking about, you know, love your enemies. And as you pursue that path that journey of love, you start discovering, oh, there's, there's no enemies on this path. Right? They, they're gone. And so, uh, yeah, I think what you're saying is right. Like in, in this context here, that, that the Lord is, is giving them a, a way to not just outright reject their ideas by just contradicting them and saying that's wrong, but by through an experience coming to a realization of not what's wrong, but what's right. Right? You know, rather than saying you have no enemies, the Lord's saying everyone is your brother, right? And there's a difference there. Rather than defining something by what it isn't, defining it by what it is. That's what experience does for us. Rather than like an analytical approach, an analytical approach can typically only ever tell us what it isn't because we're basing it on our previous experience. And he's saying, well, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. Whereas when we have an experience, now it's like, oh, it's that. You know, you brought up the salt thing. And no longer do, does our understanding of something have to be defined by what it isn't. It can just be defined by what it is. And that's what journey brings rather than just, you know, like you were talking about that analytical contradiction of our previous experience.
1: I like that. I don't have anything to add to that. That was awesome.
0: Okay. Great. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ben, do you have anything (laughs) else for section section 75?
0: 75? Uh, No, not really. Not really. I mean, there's a lot of names, um, you know, talking about how to go and preach the gospel and do missionary work and nothing in particular that, that stood out to me.
1: Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for, for listening to us. (laughs) We hope it, I, I always, I always feel really good and really pumped after, after we've, We've done this and I, I write notes down and I go back and I, and I scribble. So I'm going to have to go scribble some more. So thank you everybody for listening uh, this far and we will see you back next week. Until then I'm Shiloh Logan.
0: I'm Ben Peterson.
1: We'll see you next week.